0: church in the nursery. Well, as Ben said, we're in this uh, sermon series, and as Laura said, in the sermon series uh, called I Am, and it's looking and learning from Jesus and about Jesus in his own words, discovering who Jesus is, what he came to do, not what people think about Jesus, but what Jesus says about himself. Uh, And so far we've talked about the statements, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate for the sheep. And and last week, Jeff brought a message for us on I am the good shepherd. And so we've seen that Jesus didn't come just to show us a way or give us some truth or give us life. Jesus is the way, the only way to the Father. He is the truth. All truth is, is, is embodied in and based on the foundation of the Word made flesh. Jesus is the life abundant and eternal. We've learned that Jesus came to be the light of the world, that He came... To, to lead us out of the darkness of sin and death into the light of life. And just like with the plant that's been talked about, light brings life, it brings growth, it exposes evil, it illuminates our path and guides our steps. Jesus is the gate. He's the only way for sheep to enter the safety of God's fold. He is the one who delivers us to salvation and defends us from our enemies so that we can live in the freedom of abundance of God's provision of God's life. He is the Good Shepherd who leads and feeds and even lays down His life for His sheep. He's always providing for us and protecting us and guiding us and prodding us in the way that we should go. And that brings us to today's I Am statement. I Am the resurrection and the life in John 11. If you'd go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 11. This statement is unique among the I Am statements for two reasons. One, it's the only one that wasn't spoken in the context of preaching or teaching the disciples or confronting the Pharisees. So it's, it's spoken in a teachable moment, but it's not in an intentional teaching like the rest of them were. And it's the only one that was spoken to a single person, to Martha. All the rest of them were said to a crowd, to the disciples or, or to some other larger group. Also, it's important for us to, to understand that this story in John 11 is the axis upon which the entire Gospel of John turns. It's the halfway point in the book. It records the seventh and final of Jesus' miraculous signs in John. There won't be another miracle take place until Jesus' own resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. And it's the last straw that finally turned the religious establishment fully and fatally against Jesus. So for us to really understand this idea of Jesus being the resurrection and the life, we need to dig into the context of the story in which we find this statement. You know, Jesus' first recorded miracle was at a wedding in John's Gospel. His last one was at a funeral. And both of them were meant to communicate God's glory, His grace, and that He can do far more in our lives than we could ever imagine. So as we look through this story, I want you to consider who you are in this story. Maybe you're a Mary or a Martha, and you're overwhelmed with grief. You're dealing with a a, a, a situation and you wonder, where is Jesus in this? Maybe this morning you're like Lazarus. You're bound in the dark, in your own tomb of sin and shame, of of fear and anxiety or depression, and you need Jesus to give you new life. Or maybe, and we're not going to talk about this part, but at the very end of the story you've got the Pharisees who were threatened by all of this. And they used Lazarus' resurrection as an excuse to kill Jesus. Maybe like you, like them, you find yourself threatened sometimes by how God is working in the world. He's not fitting nicely into your little box and you don't quite understand what he's doing or you see him doing something in someone else's life that maybe you get a little cynical about, is this genuine, is this really happening? Who are you in this story? Think about that as we go through this today. Because in this story, we discover who Jesus is in the context of friendship and faith and how He is near to us in our grief and able to transform our situation no matter what it is, no matter how bleak it is, whatever it is that we're facing. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we are thankful for this story. and We are thankful, Lord, for the amazing, miraculous works that Christ did and still does today through the Holy Spirit Even through His body, the church, Lord, You are still at work and moving in this world. And I pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts to see what You would have to say to us through this text today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you'll look with me at John 11, the first 16 verses, jesus here we see Jesus is our caring friend. He's our caring friend. Let's look at this together. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped His feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Him, Lord, the one You love is sick. When Jesus heard it, He said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when He heard that He was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where He was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, our our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Bless their hearts. Don't you sometimes just just read and just (laughs) bless them. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too, so we may die with him. Thomas, always the bright spot in the group, you know. Um, So, you know, we know from this text that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were Jesus' dearest friends. He loved them deeply, and they loved him. They were supportive of his his ministry. They trusted Jesus implicitly, so naturally when Lazarus was so sick he was about to die, the sisters sent word to Jesus. If he hadn't have been so gravely ill, they wouldn't have bothered Jesus because they understood how busy he was, how in demand he was. They understood the importance of his mission on the earth, and they also understood how dangerous it would be for Jesus at that time to come so close to Jerusalem because the religious leaders were looking for a way to arrest him. Maybe that's why they didn't actually ask Jesus to come. They just sent the message, Lord, the one you love is sick, but there was an assumption that Jesus would come, wasn't there? That they were hoping, they were believing and trusting that Jesus would come because they knew that Jesus could heal Lazarus with a word, with a touch. They were counting on Jesus to come. You know, there's few things as precious in this life as knowing you've got a good friend that you can call on in a time of need. Amen? I mean, I hope you've got somebody in your life that you know that if, 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 you, if your back was up against the wall, if things were just really tough, you were in a crisis, you have somebody you can call that would drop whatever they're doing and be there in an instant to help you. But what if that person never answers the phone for you? What if that person doesn't show up? What if they're MIA? What do we do when Jesus doesn't show up? We say that Jesus is a friend who never leaves us nor forsakes us. We say that Jesus cares about us and He hears the prayers of His people, and that's true. But if we're honest, there are times that we feel alone. There are moments we might feel forsaken. Sometimes it feels like our prayers can't even get to the ceiling. And we wonder, where is God? When will He show up? When will He do something? David experienced these same kinds of thoughts and expressed them in Psalm 13. He said, How long, Lord? Will You forget me forever? How long will You hide Your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. I imagine there are a lot of people in Israel today feeling and thinking the same thing. I imagine Lazarus might have even had this psalm on his mind as he stood at death's doorstep. And maybe you've asked similar questions of God. You've cried out in desperation for healing or for God to spare the life of someone you love, for for justice, for provision, for some... That you need, that you just ask God to do for you, that it feels like God's ignoring you. It feels like God just doesn't care. In this story, we know something that at the time, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the disciples did not know. And that's that Jesus did care. Right? Jesus wasn't ignoring them. Jesus had a plan more glorious than anything they could possibly imagine. Even His disciples were confused when He said, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there to heal Lazarus. Why? Because of the greater miracle Jesus was going to do that would help them to see, know, and believe who exactly it was that Jesus is. He was more than just a healer of broken bones, more than just a restorer of sight and hearing, more than just a cleanser of leprosy. He is the giver of life. And they're about to see that. Now, David in Psalm 13 may have struggled with God's apparent seeming slowness and, and silence. But he never wavered in his faith, which is why David ended Psalm 13 like this. He said, But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because He has treated me generously. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith when things are going well, does it? When we're on the spiritual mountaintop where God's presence and power just seems so obvious to us, it's easy to believe in God when we're resting in the pastures of plenty. But when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, surrounded by our enemies, that's when we really need faith to trust that the Good Shepherd is with us, protecting us and providing for us and guiding us. Amen? Even in those dark valleys, facing enemies who wanted him dead, David chose to declare his faithful trust in God's love. He chose to preemptively rejoice in the deliverance he knew God was going to bring for him in his perfect timing. He remembered all the past times that God had been faithful and generous, and he trusted that while circumstances may change, God never changes. He was faithful before, he'll be faithful again. And for us in John 11, knowing how the story ends, we see that Jesus wasn't being careless or cruel and allowing Lazarus to die. God was up to something more amazing than anyone could have imagined. God was allowing Lazarus and Mary and Martha to be at the center of one of the greatest miracles in human history, an incredible act that would send shockwaves throughout Israel and would help with the final step that Jesus was going to take to completing His redemptive mission for us. Love and suffering are not mutually exclusive. God sometimes does permit things to happen to us for a purpose beyond our understanding. Nothing happens to you that God does not permit. He doesn't cause it, but He permits it. And He does it for a reason. There's no situation in which God cannot be glorified. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's an impossible situation at work, a struggling marriage, a crushing debt, a disabling disease. God can be glorified in every situation. The problem for us is that usually our first question is, How can I get out of this situation the fastest? Right? We we pray and we want God to fix it and fix it now. But maybe a better question would be, How can God be glorified in this? How can God use this for something far greater than I can imagine or see right now? What if we approached the problems in our world and our lives from that kind of a perspective? And that comes with spiritual maturity and wisdom. We can begin to see our situation in light of the cross of Christ and trust that what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28 is true when he said that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Look back at verses 4 and 5. And we'll see that Jesus delayed His coming for two reasons. Look at verses 4 and 5. When Jesus heard it, He said, The sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God. Okay, And then in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The glory of God and the love for His friends is why Jesus delayed. You see, God's glory and God's love are not opposed to each other. They are both ways in which we can see that Jesus truly is a caring friend god's glory is displayed best in his endless love for his people so you see god will always work whatever it is that we're facing somehow in ways we can't even imagine he can work them out for his glory and for our good because he loves us jesus is a friend who cares secondly we see jesus is our compassionate life giver let's look at verse 17 When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying, In private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoled her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him the same thing that her sister had said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, He was deeply moved in His spirit and troubled. "'Where have you put Him?' He asked. "'Lord,' they told Him, "'come and see.'" Jesus wept. So the Jews said, "'See how He loved Him?' But some of them said, "'Couldn't He who opened the blind man's eyes have also kept this man from dying?' So when Jesus finally did arrive, Mary and Martha each rushed out to meet Him. They weren't angry at Jesus. I'm sure they were hurt. They were probably confused." But they still had incredible faith in Him. Even though Jesus didn't answer their prayers the way that they had hoped, and at the time that they had hoped, they still believed that Jesus could have answered those prayers. They both expressed this great faith in Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And Martha says, even still I know that God will give you whatever you ask. This was an incredible, profound confession of faith. When they each ran out to Jesus, they were looking at Jesus through the fog of their grief and sorrow. But very quickly, the presence of Jesus changed them, and they began to see their situation with clarity through the lens of Christ and His presence. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright said that for the Christian, life does not suddenly become free of problems, but in the company of the living Christ, we may be able to look at them with humility and faith, to cope with them with renewed strength and purpose and to live our whole lives with holiness and hope. Mary and Martha ran to Jesus with their pain, with their doubts and questions. They came in faith and gratitude that Jesus finally did come, even though it wasn't when they had hoped. And Jesus noticed He embraced each sister and met them at their point of need. He met with them right where they were. And in the same way Jesus does that for us, He meets us and welcomes us tenderly and lovingly at the point of our need with whatever little faith we're able to bring. He meets us. We see here Jesus' deep compassion as He wept at Lazarus' grave. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it, it bears so many questions. Why did Jesus weep when He knew what He was about to do? Why did He show such a public display of, of grief And I think there's a few reasons. First, remember that though Jesus is 100% God, He's also 100% man. Jesus has feelings just like we do. And Jesus was heartbroken with grief over the suffering and the grief that He saw around Him. He was weeping for the sake of His dear friends. And I think also that maybe in that moment, God the Son, the eternal Word made flesh, was looking beyond those tears and that grave to all the tears and all the graves and all the world throughout history. And He was grieved at how much sin and death and suffering had invaded His good and perfect world. I think also Jesus wept so that we could know that grieving doesn't mean disbelieving. That flooded eyes do not equal faithless hearts. Jesus' tears give us permission to shed our own and we can know when we do that Jesus understands the sense of loss, the emptiness, the pain, the disappointment of dashed dreams. He sympathizes with us. We can grieve, but not like those who don't know the rest of the story. Amen? We grieve with hope, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. He used that same analogy that Jesus did so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Him. But I also think that Jesus wept to give us something to emulate. Right? Paul said in Romans twelve fifteen that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We should do what Jesus did and love other people enough to enter into their suffering. Now, even though Jesus was about to do something to fix their their, their pain, their problem, to take away their suffering, Jesus first shared their pain. He entered their grief before He eliminated the need for it. And I think that is something for us to remember, that we shouldn't be afraid to enter someone else's pain. But we tend to sort of shy away from that kind of stuff, right? Things that make us uncomfortable, we want to sort of smooth over the, the rough things in our life with little platitudes and things we say here and there, but... We should instead follow Jesus' loving example and sit with others in their sorrow. Weep with those who weep. Pray for a heart that breaks for others who are suffering and grieving. Even in their grief and confusion, Mary and Martha believed that Lazarus would be raised from the dead at the last day. But Jesus here shatters their conception of resurrection and life. Jesus told them the resurrection isn't just a concept to believe, it's a person to trust. Listen, our hope is not just in some future event, resurrection. Our hope is in a present person, Jesus Christ. He is our resurrection. He is our life. He is the present reality of our future hope. Nothing can hinder Jesus from giving us life because He doesn't just have life, He is life. You and I, we have life. Jesus is life. You and I can lose our life. Jesus can never lose His life. He laid it down temporarily of His own accord and picked it back up again to show us even death could not take life from Him. Jesus called death sleep because physical death is merely a temporary station in the presence of the One who is resurrection and life. Death cannot prevail in the presence of Jesus. He said Lazarus' sickness would not end in death, and it didn't because it ended in resurrection. It ended in life. For those who know Jesus, death does not get the final word. Life is the final word. And that's not just some nice theological thought or statement. That is a personal reality. And Jesus is about to make it a present personal reality for all those around him. He's going to do something he only did a handful of times in the Gospels. He's going to raise someone from the dead back to life. So we see finally that Jesus is our confidence for the future. Let's read the rest of the story, beginning in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been dead for four days. Now, let's just think for just a minute here. In verse 38, it says again that Jesus was deeply moved. That Greek word can mean angry, raging, Imagine a tempest raging within God the Son, the Good Shepherd, the source and sustainer of life as He stood face to face with death. He was confronting the power of darkness while surrounded by the grief of those He loved. He was raging. And in verse 39, they still did not understand. How often do we have the right theology in our head, but we haven't quite let it get down to our heart and transform our lives? and the way we see things, the way we talk about things, the way we live it out. You know, we can believe that God can answer prayers and solve problems, but just not this problem. It's too hard. It's too impossible to fix. It's too little, too late. Or we say, Jesus can make a difference in someone's life, but just not her. She's damaged goods. Not Him. He's too far gone. But Lord, they said, there will be a stink... But as we're about to discover, Jesus doesn't just fix us up. Jesus raises us up from death to life. He removes the stench of sin and death and makes us a pleasing aroma to God. We become an aroma of Christ that appeals to all those around us. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You heard Me. I know that You always hear Me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so they may believe You sent Me. Notice Jesus doesn't raise the dead just for the sake of the dead, but for the sake of the living. For the people that are around Him watching this. And then finally it says, after He said this, He shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus told them, Unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. The Word speaks. A shout of life. And the dead man heard the voice of his shepherd and he answered his call and he stepped out of death and into life. The dead man came out. Did you hear that? What's wrong with that picture? Dead men don't come walking out of tombs. Jesus went and touched the son of the widow of Nain who had died and it says that he sat up and talked. Guess what? Dead men don't sit up and talk. He went to Jairus's daughter and he touched her and he raised her to life and she got up and ate. Well, guess what? Dead girls don't usually get up and eat. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man that could do this? He's the one who holds the keys to life and death in His hands. He is the resurrection and the life. Romans 4.14.9 says, For this very reason Christ died and returned to life. Why? So that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus has done it before and He'll do it again. Look at what it says in First Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. He is the resurrection and the life. And that should give us a great sense of hope for the future, especially when the present looks so bleak. But what does all this mean for us right now? What is demanded of us in light of this Jesus who is resurrection and life? Well, look back at verses 44 and 45. There are two things that it says right there for us to do. First, notice that Jesus gave those in the crowd an opportunity to participate. They got to participate in this amazing miracle. They were the ones who freed Lazarus from his death cloths. Jesus calls us to do the same. He calls us as believers to join Him in His life-giving work of setting captives free. Jesus is calling men and women, boys and girls, to come out of spiritual death and to step in eternal and abundant life. And He calls us, His church, to reach out to them and to welcome them into a new family, to teach them to walk in a new way of life, to help them discover their spiritual gifts and to release them to do ministry in this world. Our job, church, is to remove people's grave clothes and let them go. God wants us to be ready to receive a procession of the formerly dead. People who are called from their tombs to walk in the newness of life. Because Jesus is resurrection. And He is life. You know, back in John 8, Jesus said that when we obey Him, we would know the truth that sets us free. When we live in the way of the One who is life, we are freed from the tombs of our own making. We're released from all those grave cloths that bind us. We are set free to live a life that is abundant and eternal. And Jesus said that if we belong to Him, if we are the sheep of His pasture, then we know His voice. He will call us out of darkness to walk into His marvelous light. And then He sends us out to help other people experience the same thing. But the second thing in verse 45... Not only did He call people to help set Lazarus free, people were called to put their faith in Jesus. What about you? Will you answer the call of the Good Shepherd this morning? Jeff did such a great job last week helping us to understand that our Good Shepherd laid down His life for His sheep. He did it voluntarily, He did it vicariously, and He did it victoriously because He rose from the dead on the third day to never die again. He did that for you. And He is calling you to step out of your tomb, to cross over from spiritual death to eternal and abundant life. Maybe you need Jesus to bring new life into a seemingly hopeless situation that you're facing. You, you feel like Mary or Martha. You're wondering, where is God? When is He going to answer my prayers? You begin to look at whatever it is you're facing, not through the lens of your situation, but through the lens of the cross of Christ. Through the One who laid down His life for you, Will you trust that Jesus is a caring friend? Will you trust that He is a compassionate life giver? Will you trust that He is the confidence for your own future resurrection? Maybe this morning Jesus is calling you to step up to someone that you have considered too far gone. There's no hope for that person. and Maybe He's asking you to remove their grave clothes. Maybe He's asking you to welcome them into a new community of faith. The faith of the formerly dead who are now alive in Christ. And though our bodies will someday not be able to contain that life anymore and our bodies will fail and grow weak and die, yet we will continue to live forever and ever. And we will never die. Maybe you need to confess your unbelief. Maybe you need to confess your self-centered perspectives. Maybe a judgmental or cynical attitude. Whatever it is, would you... Heed the voice of your shepherd. Would you, like Lazarus, step out when Jesus calls your name and step into his life and his presence? Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. We thank you for Jesus who is our compassionate, caring friend. We thank you, Lord, that even though we don't understand your timing, even though you may not answer our prayers exactly the way that we think they should be, We trust that You are a good and gracious God who sees and knows far more than what our feeble minds could possibly ever understand. And we trust You because You see the beginning and the end. You know every twist and turn and the trail ahead of us. And we will follow Your voice, Lord. If there's anyone here today that's never made that decision to follow You, they've never answered the call of Christ to step out of sin and death into eternal life, I pray they would do that today, right now that someone who is in that tomb of sin would step into eternal life that begins now and goes on forever. But Lord, maybe those of us even who are believers are struggling with areas in our life that we need to trust You more. We need to rely on Your goodness and trust in Your grace that You are at work. You're at work in ways we can't even imagine to do something more glorious than we could ever dream. And God, I pray that You would help us in faith and love to grieve with those who grieve, to weep with those who weep, to come alongside those who are stepping out of death into life and to greet them and to welcome them and to help them live free in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.